This morning we'll be taking a look at a personal journey and in order to get a clear picture of where God has led us to now, I'm going to take a a look first of all backwards quite a bit. So I'm going to take a look at the journey that the nation of Israel went on. Now, don't look like, oh gosh, this is a history lesson. This is going to be interesting, okay? So keep your hats on. Uh, This is going to help us to know exactly where we are going. I think this relates to us as a church as well. So I'm going to start here. And for some of you, this is going to be new information. But for most of you, if you've been in church for a little while, a lot of this you would have heard before and it would make sense to you. But I'm going to just give you a thumbnail sketch of the story of the nation of Israel. It starts over there. One man, one God. Now, before this time, Abraham wasn't worshiping God, okay? Before, before Abraham knew God, it, 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 the nations around and about served many gods. But there was only one God, and he revealed himself to Abraham, and he made a promise to Abraham. The promise that he made to Abraham was two things. One, I'm going to give you territory. I'm going to give you land. The other thing was that I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Many people have heard that, and that is the start of everything. Now, it wasn't the start for God, but it's the start for us. So, God speaks to Abraham, and he makes this promise. That's very important that we'll get to this now. And and God tells him as a reminder that it's constant for him. He says, look at the stars. Look at the sand. Can you count them? Just count them quickly for me. And Abraham says, there's just no ways. I can't, obviously, I can't count the sand. I can't count the stars. He says, that's what it's going to look like. When people look at all the people that come from you, it's going to be that numerous. It's going to be that impossible to count. But, of course, Abraham, who was getting on in age, struggled to believe that. And he was getting on, and, and, and uh, nothing happened. And eventually, he did. He had a son. His son's name was Isaac. So you'll often hear that God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God, and his name was changed to Israel. Then Jacob, now here's the interesting thing, had 12 sons. One of the 12 sons of Jacob, or Israel, was Joseph. Now Joseph, many of us know the story very well of Joseph. He was he was, um, his brothers were jealous of him. He was sort of favored by his father, Isaac, and they plotted to kill him. But instead of killing him, they sold him as a slave to people who were passing by going on their way to Egypt. And he was sold and he served in, 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 um, in a household there, in Potiphar's household, and he rose up in rank until he was in charge of the household. All of the other servants and slaves and everyone else, he became in charge. He was falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison, where he raised himself from a prisoner to the person who was looking after the prison. Um, and so he, he was clearly a man who knew what he was doing. He knew God was with him, and he accomplished incredible things. But while he was in prison, so he raised himself up, in the household, then in the prison, and then when he finally came out of prison, which, which they estimate was about 14 years that he spent um, there, which is a very long time to be developing character, but he spent that time there, and he came out and, and he interpreted a dream for the Pharaoh, and that led him to be in charge of every single thing in the nation, in the country of Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh. So he was the most powerful person in the known world at that time. And uh, after that, where are we? here we are. Joseph became the Egyptian prime minister, as I said. Now, 
Joseph's brothers, all 11 of them, they all had clans and tribes and they were growing and multiplying and, and, you know, taking over more and more space and territory. And they were in Egypt when they were rescued by Joseph because they had all the food. And they grew and grew to such a space that the Egyptians said, these guys are growing far too fast, far too powerful. Uh, if they ally with one, of, uh, with one of our enemies, they could easily overthrow us um, because of how many of them there were. So the Egyptians, who now, of course, Joseph was favored, but now we're talking years and years later. The next king, the next pharaoh, the next president of Egypt at that time wasn't so friendly uh, with the people from there. And so he actually enslaved the people. He enslaved the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob over there, all of them. And that's what they did. They worked as slaves. And they were slaves for 400 years, which is incredible. Moses steps onto the scene. And he rescues the Israelites, God's chosen nation. So he says, these are my people who are, who are slaves and they serve God. Why are my people who are, who are God-fearing serving Pharaoh and Egypt? And why are they slaves? And God, God speaks to Moses and he leads them out of captivity and takes them into the wilderness. Now, why was Israel God's chosen nation? As I said, for us, it looks like the beginning of the story there. But of course, if you take a step back, you can see that when sin was thrown into the world, it separated us from God. And so this, if you look at the big picture of the Bible, is the thread that runs through everything, that we can see God's hand in absolutely everything. Because we know now because they didn't, we do, we've got the Bible, we can see what the thread was that was running through Abraham's family line there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and it carries on, and eventually it gets to Jesus. And so God knew all along that the, the tree was going somewhere, that the lineage was going somewhere. But all we knew and all they knew was that Abraham was made a promise by God that he was going to be the father of many nations and that he was going to get incredible land. So Moses takes Israel out of Egypt, and there's been movies made about this, and many of you will know, and he took them out after the ten plagues, and they crossed the sea, and uh, they were in the wilderness. And a journey that takes about two weeks took them to the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham in the beginning. The land that the Bible often says flowing with milk and honey. I don't think it's literally flowing with milk and honey, although that was very confusing for me when I was younger. I could not understand how honey flows and why would milk flow unless it was squeezed out of an animal. I don't really understand. It was just a very difficult image for me to get to, to grips with. But there was a land flowing with milk and honey. What that means, it was prosperous. It was a blessed place. The fruit there was amazing. The, fo the, the soil was fertile. Um, the animals, the plants, everything just grew incredibly well. So what, what he's saying is, this is a, a wonderful land to live in. This is not an arid desert or something like that. And so Moses comes, and he steps onto the scene, and he leads them to the promised land. Now this land is the promised land. So God promised that they could have it. And they get to the border of it. And Moses sends out 12 spies just to suss out the land and see what's happening and who's there. Um, because here's the deal. The promised land wasn't vacant space waiting for someone to come and take it. See, we often think that it is. It's like, well, if God's promised me something, surely I'm just going to step right into it. No, it doesn't always work like that. God had made this promise, but there were nations living there already that had to be displaced. Because the people of God were coming to live there. So it's quite, a, quite an amazing thing. So he takes them to the edge. He sends 12 spies in. All 12 come back and 10 come with the report. And the report is this. 
The land is incredible. It really is. But the people there are extremely big. And we don't think this is a good time to be attacking them. They actually said, we look like grasshoppers next to these people. Uh, everything there is just bigger than everything else. So it must have been America that they were going into. I'm not sure. So they just, everything's bigger. And, uh, and it's too scary. But two people, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a different report. Theirs had a massive but attached to it. The land is amazing. The people are huge. But... And this is what God said. Oh, never mind, I'm way ahead. God said that the land is ours. Let me read it to you exactly from, from the thing. It says this. It says, The land is amazing and the people that occupy it are powerful. But the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. That comes from Numbers 14 verse 9. And so these two men came with a completely different report to the other ten. But the nation took the side of the 10. And so God said, you know, obviously you can just imagine God saying, but I promise you this land. It's been hundreds of years. I mean, you must remember that from Abraham to there, they were in, in, in Egypt for 400 years. So you're talking four, five, 600 years that you're talking about here. And God said, here's the land I promise you. I've led you to it. I've shown you miracles. This is incredible. Here you are. And they said, no ways. This is too scary. This is too big. I'm not taking it. And so God said, all right. Then everyone who's in that generation of slave mindset people. You see, because that's all you've known if you've grown up in slavery, is slavery. They said, everyone who's grown up with that mentality, you need, to, you need to die, and the next generation needs to come in. And that's where you get people wandering in the, in the desert and in the wilderness for 40 years. And then finally, Joshua, the one who initially said, that we can do this, comes back 40 years later. Now, he's obviously an older man now, but he leads the people into the promised land. And then Israel takes possession of the land. And in time, they become a nation. And the circle that started over there, with God making a promise to Abraham, gets fulfilled hundreds of years later as the nation is too numerous for people to sit and count them, and they inherit the land that God promised him ages ago. So it's a fantastic and a very neat story. But there's a pattern, and this is what I want to pick up, that comes from this, and maybe you've already picked it up, but the journey of the nation of Israel. And take a look here. This is what happened. You start off as slaves. Now we understand that. We know what that means. But then as soon as Moses came along and he took them out of Egypt, he delivered them from there, from captivity. They became a family. One of the first things that God did when the Israelites went, went into the wilderness was he gave them a set of rules. He gave them the commandments. And he said, these are the things, you, you haven't lived like this before. This is new to you. What you know is being slaves. What you know is being subservient to the Egyptians. Now you're living in the wilderness. You've got different enemies. You've got people who like you, people who don't like you. You need to learn to live with each other. So here's a set of rules that's going to help you to do that. And so he gives them almost the family rules. Um, and that whole wilderness experience is a time of nurturing, of sharing, of feeding, of equipping. It's a time when the nation grows strong and healthy. You with me? And then something happens. They step in and over. Now it's 40 years later. It didn't need to take that long, but it did. 40 years pass in the desert and they enter the promised land, led by Joshua. 
the first thing they encounter is a city which is fortified with incredibly high walls, unusually high walls. The first thing they encounter is Jericho. Now, Jericho is a mighty fortress. I mean, can you imagine just stepping into what you feel God has promised you, and there you've got this massive city. That's the very first thing that you have to take. So something happened where they were no longer slaves. They had become family. But when they crossed the border into the promised land, the very nature of the nation had to change. And they moved from being family to being an army. Because a family doesn't shout, a family doesn't march, a family doesn't fight. To do those things and to take possession of the land God has promised you, you need something different. You need an army. Now, what we need to do, what we need to see here, and the reason I'm even bringing the history of this in, is because of this. The journey of the nation of Israel echoes the journey of the church. Now, many of us sitting here would understand what I'm talking about when I say that we come out of a slavery mindset. They were slaves for 400 years. We've been slaves for millennia. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to the things we want. And it's an unfortunate byproduct of what happened so long ago. But the bottom line is this. When we are born, God's got a path, and we're born on this path. And it's a path of slavery. It's a path of doing everything we want. It's a path of, of resisting God. And if you just need to have a child to understand how early that sets in. A resistance to authority and, and a, a, a strong will to want to do what I want to do. That's in our very nature. Sin isn't something we do. Sin is a part of who we are. We can't just stop doing it and then be okay for God. Because you can't take that out of you. But the good news is that God can. And so he takes you from that path onto this path. And he sets you into families. Isn't that awesome? See, the Bible says Christ sets captives free and places the lonely in families, in churches. And what happens in churches? You're fed, spiritually speaking, sometimes physically speaking. You're taken care of. You're equipped to do what you need to do. So so all that nurturing, that feeding happens in a church setting. As we become a family. Now let me say this to this church. I think this is an incredibly. I don't want to say unique. It's not a unique thing. But it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I think that this church is, has an incredible sense of family about it. Um, unusually so. Uh, with, with the way that people interact and mix. And not just here in our, in our setting over here. But outside of these walls and during work time and those sorts of things. The way that people connect and interact in a genuine and loving way is a testament to what God is doing in this church. And so I would say that, that as a church, we're kind of, God has really been good to us. And I think he's put all of us into this family. Now, there comes a time though, and here's the thing, when we have to make another shift as a church, because there's more for us than gathering together. There's nothing wrong with gathering together, unless that's all you're doing. There needs to be more than that. And so as a church, and this is where it gets personal to us now, I believe we're in this stage over here where God is leading us to be an army. Now, what does that mean? 
What actually changes when the church moves from being a family to being an army? Let me just say this. The primary, the core function of the church changes. Does that mean that we lose our heart for slaves, for people who are captives? Does that mean that we no longer preach freedom for those who are still bound by their sin? No, of course it doesn't mean that. Of course we're always going to be preaching that. That's part of what we do. Does it mean we lose our sense of connection, our intimacy? No ways. The good news is you can retain those things as you move into there. I mean, imagine an army that didn't nourish or equip its people because that was something we used to do over there. That would be insane. And so we take that into where we're going. But God is opening doors for us. The primary role is changing. And the role in this next season for us as a church is taking territory from the enemy. It's not just understanding that God has got something for us. It's occupying land that we have been promised but have not yet stepped into and possessed. Some of you are still like, whoa. Why is church so hectic today? (laughs) This is important. See, God is shifting things. And I wouldn't want anyone here to not understand why certain things that we focused on and investing in changing. And the reason is that we're changing our core uh, emphasis in a good way and in a strong way, in a way that takes us forward. Now, here's the thing. We've been promised land, but we haven't stepped into it yet. There's a difference between being promised and actually taking possession of things. You know that God promised the land to Abram how long ago? And even when the people stood at the border and the the 12 spies gave a report, God had promised that land. Do you think they could have walked into it and done what they needed to do in that first session? I think they could have. Because God said, here it is, I'm giving it to you, take it. And they said, no, 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 we're too afraid. The land's amazing and the people that occupy it are powerful. But the two spies said, the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. God himself told them to take the land, but they were afraid. You want to hear what Jesus says about the church? Because this is where it becomes real for us. He said this, and I love the way the message paraphrase puts it. In Matthew 16, 18, I will put together my church. This is Jesus speaking. I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. So they had their promised land, but can I tell you something? We have our promised land. And we stand and we sit here and we're in Krafrenet and this is where we work and where we study and when we do, where we do everything that we do. But I want to put something to you. You might think you're here for some reason or another because it's a healthier climate, because you like hunting, because you've got a farming this or that. You know, you might think you're here for a certain reason. But I'm telling you that God has put you here for something more intricate and more purposeful than just that, than just creating money, than just having a safe place for your kids to grow up. God said to them, this is your promised land, take it. And he said to us, I'm building my church and nothing's going to stop me. 
What he's implying there is like, get on board or move out the way. Because I'm doing things. There's territory to take here. If you want to just shrink back and say, ah, it's a bit scary, that's fine. Guess who's going to do it? The next generation. They're going to say, why didn't our fathers do this? Why didn't they step into what God had promised them? I don't know about you, but I'm ready to take some territory. I want to share something with you now. And it comes from Sunday night. If you were there on Sunday night at our encounter evening, it's, uh, then you would have heard this. If you weren't there or you don't know what that is, that's just when we come together, it's once a term and we just praise God and pray. It's really just a, some people will call it a praise party. Uh, it doesn't matter what you call it. The point is it's just a good time to get together and praise God and hear from Him. And at that time, last Sunday night, Wendy had a word. So we allow... Um, people in the church to come and to share something with us. And Wendy had something, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase it a bit here. I'm going to give it to you as clear as I can. If you don't know who Wendy is, that's her there on the right-hand side, although she's normally wearing glasses. Um, so you may not recognize her. But I'm going to read this straight. Okay, this comes from an email from Wendy, but it just it, it explains what she said, and I believe it is dead on track with where we are as a church. So take a listen to this. What we have as a church is wonderful. What we shared on Sunday evening, this was now on Monday, what we shared on Sunday evening was wonderful. Look at us. We truly are a church as God intended church to be. But I felt he had something very serious to put to us as a church, but especially as individuals. Jesus called 12 men to follow him, and they changed the world. Right up till today, the world has been different because of them. Here we are. Many more than 12. If God could use 12 people to influence the entire world, what could he do in Crawford through us? One problem is that we look at ourselves. Many of us battle with this and think, but who am I? I'm nothing and nobody. How can God use me? Yet the 12 men Jesus chose and called were all nothings and nobodies. Absolutely ordinary people just like we are. And look what he did through them. The second problem we often have is that we think church is Dolan's responsibility. This is obviously her words. Is Dolan's responsibility or Dolan and Sarah and Ingrid and the elders' responsibility. We don't get that we are all called, all chosen by God. He is asking for our surrender. Do we believe he's chosen and called us, handpicked us to be here in Crawford for his purposes? I believe we are at a crossroads as a church. We have a choice. We can go on enjoying what we have, but keeping it for ourselves, here within these four walls. Or we can take up God's challenge to follow him. Are we willing to go before him and get serious in asking him, what is my role? What have you put me here in Hrafranet for? What would you have me do? What is my part in your plan? That was what she shared with us on Sunday. And it just resonated so solidly with me. The way I heard that word is this, and it's much shorter. You're a wonderful family, caring, warm, and nurturing. It's time now for for you to begin to take that sense of genuine unity and real community to move as an army into areas I've prepared for you to occupy, to to begin to do the works that I prepared so long ago for you to do. God is doing something. And what I'm saying is we need to get on board as a church. Somehow, he's going to start to open doors. 
Somehow he's going to speak to people's hearts. And you're going to have thoughts and ideas. And it's not just going to be you. There's going to be people outside of this church that are that are having their own ideas and they just want to start something and they want to get this initiative going and all of a sudden there's a burden on their heart to get the education uh, in our community sorted out and all of a sudden there's a burden to get these medically related things sorted out. God is going to start to open doors like that and he's going to start to speak to us as individuals. So you say, what's the so what? How do I... What am I supposed to do with this? Okay, so we're moving from a family to an army. So we've got to take territory. We've got to, do, uh, we've got to take possession of that which God has promised us. What do I do? The last part of Wendy's thing is probably the best. What is my role? This is you speaking to God. What is my role? What have you put me here in Crawford for? What would you have me do? What is my part in your plan? These are serious questions that we need to get before God and say, what is, what is this? Am I just here to kill time? Am I just here until I retire? Am I just here to get educated? Am I just here until my business works and then I can sell it and do something else? Am, or is it possible that you're here for this time in history? Is it possible that you've got a role to play in what God is doing in our community and even in our nation. I really believe it is. I'm going to ask, is it the worship team, are you guys <laughs> still here? Yes. Come on up. I was at meetings in Joburg on Tuesday and there was a speaker there and he was speaking and what he was saying just gelled with me instantly and I want to share some thoughts with you that that came out of that meeting and things that I was thinking about from that one of the things he said was this we can confuse gathering as the church with being the church listen carefully we can confuse gathering as the church with being the church what happens on our platform is not church church is not the 75 minutes that you spend in this building on a Sunday morning. The reality is this. Church starts when you walk out the door. That's when church begins. 75 minutes on a Sunday is not going to change this community. We can all agree with that. That's not going to help anyone. But 75 minutes on a Sunday can equip you to change a community. There's a difference that can be made. You bring the hope that this community is waiting for. You know that you carry that inside of you? When you realize that your very purpose is tied into where you find yourself, then guess what? All of a sudden, it's not a sacrifice. If we say, hey, there's a prayer meeting. Oh, another prayer meeting. When you realize that your very life's purpose is tied into where you find yourself, you want to be equipped. You want to be prepared. You want to step into, you don't want to go into Jericho and go, oh my gosh, I wish I'd lifted some weights. This is a bad time to be thinking about that. No, you want to be lifting some weights in the desert. You want to be pumping. And that's what we've been doing as a family, is equipping and strengthening and nurturing and encouraging and building. But we're doing that for a reason, because we're going somewhere. Sometimes we think that we have to survive until Jesus comes back to get us. We 
just need to make it. Oh, Jesus, come soon. Jesus, come soon. That's not how it is. While we are here, we are here to take territory, to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to close your eyes for a second if you feel comfortable doing that and just dream with me. Just imagine with me for a moment. Can you see alcohol and drug abuse being wiped away and strong, healthy families rising up? Can you see Crawford's unemployment rate coming down and the level of education rising? Can you see blessing and hope take the place of poverty and despair? Can you see corruption and greed being exposed and honesty and integrity flourishing? Don't tell me that it can't happen. It must happen. The people of God must occupy key places of influence in our community. You can look up. The Bible says this. You know what you exist for as a, as a Christ follower? To go and to be salt and light. To go and to be salt and light. You know, one of the best things about salt, especially in the day that this was written, they would have understood this maybe better than we do, is that it stops decay. Salt stops decay. You know all those things that are decaying in our community? You know the education that's completely up the tree? It's nonsense. You know the drugs that are invading the communities? Alcohol. Early pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies. All those things that are happening in our community, that's decay that's setting in. But what salt does is it stops that. It's a preservative. It stops the decay. What we are is we are to go and be salt and light. Number one, to be salt, to stop that decay, to be a part of the change in our communities, to be a part of lifting those organizations that are working hard to do that. Maybe you've got an idea to start something even. But we need to be salt. The other thing we need to be is light. Light's only effective in the dark. Light isn't... You know, if you go shine your torch outside in the daylight, it's not going to do much. You're not even going to notice it. But we want to come into church and shine our light really bright. Well, that's good. But you know where your light's going to be effective? Where it's dark. So we are to go, be salt and light, not to come and be fed and entertained. And so there's a shift that's happening, and I think it's an exciting thing. We need to take this message of the good news of Jesus to people. You know all those things that we were imagining? Poverty, education, corruption, all those things where decay is set in in our community. You know what's going to change those? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be programs alone that solve those problems. You know that there's a pattern. When your life gets Christ in it, when you join Christ, there's an upliftment that happens. And you get lifted up. It happens in individuals. You see it all the time, how God rescues people from the pit of despair. 
and slowly begins to build into them and build into them until they can see themselves as God sees them, until they can make a contribution, until they can be a a, a functioning member of society, until they're helping other people to find their purpose and their meaning in life. And, And there's a lift that happens naturally with Christ in your life. It happens in an individual's life. It happens in a family. It happens in a community. It happens in a nation. And it's so important. That's what we need. It's not just good programs. It's not just painting a school hall, although that will help. It's being salt and light in every area of our community. That's what we call to do. Next week, we are going to start a series that some of you might have heard of. It's called The Blessed Life. It's a very well-known series. When someone says to me, The Blessed Life, the first thing I think about, cash. They want more of my money, don't they? That's what's happening here. Let me tell you something. The Blessed Life is a DVD-run series by a man named Robert Morris. He is an exceptional teacher, and I believe he's had a revelation from God in terms of bringing this message to churches. This isn't a message of manipulation or it's trying to arm-twist anything out of anybody. This is a message on, on exactly that on having a blessed life and on what God intends for you. Now, it does have a financial emphasis to it. Some of the stuff does. And so that's why I'm telling you about it. I'm not just bringing it to you next week. I'm telling you now because I want you to wrestle with this. If this is a difficult issue for you, if this is a struggle for you, if you say, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can sit through a few weeks of DVDs talking about money. Oh, I don't know. Um, I understood tithing a while ago. Do I really need to sit through this stuff? Listen, Finances is probably the most, it's definitely the second most sensitive thing that we can deal with as a church. Pastors don't like talking about hell and we don't like talking about money because it always feels like you're trying to manipulate people to give their lives to Christ, which no one likes, or you're trying to manipulate people into trying to give more money so that the church can have more money. So it's a very difficult thing. And so because of that, a lot of pastors will shy away from it. Now, as a leadership team, we sat down and we said there have been a lot of people that have come into the church over the last three, six, nine, twelve months that weren't here before. They've come from different church denominations, some of them, and some of them have come from no church denomination whatsoever. So the bottom line is this. We don't know what anyone knows or believes or understands about what the Bible teaches about giving and financial stuff and money and having a blessed life. We don't know. So what we said is we're going to we're going to do this every who knows how every couple of years. This isn't something we have to do often. If you're going to avoid church for the next 6 weeks, you're probably going to miss out then for the next 2 years in terms of this teaching. Because that's the way we're going to do it. We give a little teaching before the motivation and before the offering that we receive every Sunday, but it's 2 minutes. This is going to be quite intense, but it's going to be good. Very good. And it's going to help you. So what I'm doing now is I'm asking you I know that six weeks is a long commitment. I know that you might have a wedding here or there. You might have to go to PE for this. I get that. The messages will be online, the audio versions of them, and you can get them and you can listen to them. What I'm encouraging you to do over and above that is to get into a connect group. Because this is such a sensitive topic, finances and giving, we don't want you to come to sit, to watch and to go, what is he talking about? I understood that giving was like this. I understood that this was an Old Testament principle. I understood this. 
Let's give you an opportunity and a forum to be able to express everything that you're thinking. If you've got a question about it, Connect Groups is the place to do that. So what I'm asking you to do is if you're in a Connect Group, commit to that Connect Group for the next six weeks. See it through. Um, We'll do the, the DVD on the Sunday and then on the Wednesday, we'll do the Connect Group thing. Come on the Sunday. I'm asking you, come be a part of this. This isn't, funnily enough, this isn't for us, you know. This is what we believe is going to be helpful. And we said as a leadership team, can't we just make it three weeks? Six weeks feels so long. And so so we all said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to preach it. I'm going to take his stuff and some other financial teaching and some other giving and blessing teaching, and I'm going to preach it. And then I just watched it again, and I just, I can't do it. That guy's had revelation I haven't had yet. That guy's got testimonies and examples I don't have. He's got a way of communicating that I believe God has given him for exactly what he's teaching on. And so I I thought, okay, and I made notes and I'm just like, I can't. This isn't in me to do this right now. But I do believe that it is for right now. And so we are going to do it. So it's not going to be three weeks. It is going to be six weeks. And that goes into the first week of school holiday, which is a chamorse, but what can you do? Okay, it's just the way we have to roll.